Welcome to the Biology of Trauma podcast, the show that provides professionals with the knowledge and tools for effective science-based solutions for the trauma healing journey. I am your host, Dr. Amy, and I've done the hard work so you can stop your endless searching, have a roadmap for your own work, and be able to help others more powerfully. Welcome to the Biology of Trauma podcast. I'm very excited for our guest today. Dr. Stephen Porges hardly needs an introduction, but what we are doing here in the Biology of Trauma podcast, everything that goes into that, including emotional, psychological, physiological, a lot of stuff that we're going to go over today is all about the physiology of the nervous system. And what we're doing here, are we're really bridging the worlds between medicine, functional medicine, neuroscience, and trauma therapy so that we can accelerate the healing journey rather than getting stuck or doing things that are not supportive and helpful for our physiology that it can even shift. We are providing knowledge, of course, but a big part of this is also encouraging you to make this applicable and create new experiences for yourself because that's where the shifts will come are through new experiences that we can create for ourselves. And so after the podcast, I'm going to be inviting you to a 21 day journey with me into your nervous system to actually experience a lot of what we're talking about today with Dr. Porges and this dorsal vagal response, the shutting down, freezing dissociation, and all of that physiology. I have been so privileged to start to spend more time with Dr. Porges over the last year And throughout all of my content, my courses, my curriculum, you will find the polyvagal lens. Now, Dr. Stephen Porges is a distinguished university scientist at Indiana University, where he is the founding director of the Traumatic Stress Research Consortium and a professor of psychiatry at the University of North Carolina. He served as president of the Society for Psychophysiological Research and the Federation of Associations in Behavioral and Brain Sciences and is a former recipient of a National Institute of Mental Health Research Scientist Development Award. He has now published more than 400 peer-reviewed scientific papers across several disciplines that have been cited in more than 50,000 peer-reviewed papers. He holds several patents involved in monitoring and regulating autonomic state. Dr. Porges is the originator of the polyvagal theory, a theory that I say is no longer a theory. It's a, it's a model. It's a lens that emphasizes the importance of physiological state in the expression of behavioral, mental, and health problems related to traumatic experiences. He is the author of several books, including his most recent book, Polyvagal Safety, Attachment, Communication, Self-Regulation, and a new book with his son, Our Polyvagal World, How Safety and Trauma Change Us. What we are covering in this episode are different aspects of life, ourselves, and our body through this polyvagal lens. We will first look at attachment through the polyvagal lens, then the freeze response, dissociation through the polyvagal lens, social engagement through the polyvagal lens, and how social engagement is actually a neuromodulator, and then functional diseases through the polyvagal lens, functional diseases like fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue, irritable bowel syndrome, and even COVID and long-haul COVID. Finally, we will look at step one. What is step one for us through the polyvagal lens? Where do we start? Where do we start with the work? Where do we start with reconnecting with our body? How do we start to bring regulation to a system that has been dysregulated through the lens of the polyvagal theory? So with that, welcome Dr. Porges. 
Well, thank you, Amy. Thank you for inviting me and welcome to my office. <laughs> thank you. And you, your contribution to the world has been enormous. And I know that you've been working closely with other experts in the field, trauma experts, Peter Levine, Ian McNaughton, since the 70s. And you've what we've talked about is you've developed this model that which when you look at at the body and the nervous system through that model, everything just seems to make sense in terms of behavior, health, physical health, mental health, and everything. So, and you've done, I think that you have written many articles. You are like a writing machine, Steve. <laughs> when, and you, you're still writing. I mean, you are still putting out things. Your latest articles uh, last year were on vagal tone. So you've just been a machine in terms of putting out content that has been so helpful for the field of not only trauma, but just what it means to be a human being. Well, thank you. Basically, the, the writing is a trajectory of trying to find language to communicate so people understand these principles, uh, because it didn't start with clinical applications. It came from a neurobiological understanding. And to me, I was, uh, I would say, almost shocked by the application of the model. And the group that was most welcoming to the model was the people in the world of trauma. And because it provided an, an explanation of the experience of people who were survivors. And that to me was in a sense the validation that you're onto something when you, in a sense, hypothetically describe what should happen and people tell you that's what has happened. And that's what people, um, those are, that's the language that they use when, when we talk about the freeze response and yeah. shutting down, like mm -hmm. people are saying, Yes, that's exactly how it feels inside my body. Thank you for that language. I have had no no words to put to that. And so much of what we're going to talk about today is, well, yeah, like you don't really have words for what's happening in the autonomic nervous system because it's not happening in the cortical regions of the brain. Well, it's even more important to think about this distinction that we have in our the way we've grown up, what we've learned. We think that behavior is intentional. So that we freeze, we shut down, we become scared. We think it's our problem, our fault. We don't think of it as functionally neural reflexes. Our nervous system is going to, metaphorically has a mind of its own that's different than our conscious decision-making activity. And I always like to say, if there's a battle between our intentional self and our body's need to survive, the body is going to win. The question is, we need to understand that the body's reaction is really survival driven. And we have to honor that and respect that and uh, try to create the narrative in which we understand what the body's doing, as opposed to basically shaming ourselves or finding blame. So the narrative uh, is to understand what the body is doing in the face of threat. Sometimes the threat's real, sometimes it's not. And that part, we have to learn about our bodily feelings. Then we start to appraise context. The one thing that happened for me, and the more that I've worked with people, I see and hear them describing this as well, is that I came to hate my freeze response. <laughs> I didn't know what it was yet. I didn't, yeah. I didn't, I didn't understand what it was, but being, being a medical physician, right? Like yeah. being used to performance and getting things done and mm -hmm. being at the top of my game and having to make critical decisions when that collapse came, when the shutting down came, mm -hmm. when the numbness came, I would hate it. 
And what ended up happening before I thankfully, right, like found somatic experiencing and started doing work. And now I know that I get to support my biology, not fight my biology. But what would happen is that would further create the shame mm-hmm. because as when I would come out of it, um, it would be, I never want to do that again. How, how did I let myself do that? Yeah. How could I let myself do that? What can I do? Like, let me reinforce my mind and my mind's ability to control my body. And that just is not consistent with the physiology in this model. Of no, the it makes it worse. It, it creates it worse. because the in- intentional control of your body is optimized when your body feels safe. If your body feels cues of threat, and this is really what you're doing. And even when you kind of humiliate yourself, you're really threatening yourself. The intentional capacity or the capacity to intentionally regulate your behavior is greatly diminished. So it's a lose-lose model. You feel bad and you can't do what you want to do. Now, the solution, and this is part of what you've learned through somatic experience, is the first step is to kind of witness your body and where you're aware of these physiological shifts. And then the second phase is really the narrative you develop about those physiological responses. If you see it through a polyvagal lens, you see the reactions as trying to protect you. So there's a degree of honoring what your body's doing as opposed to getting angry at it. And let's talk a little bit about the early times that this pattern uh, mm-hmm. would have been developed and how protective that was at that time, yeah. because mm-hmm. we can notice that we have these patterns, not understand why we have them. And again, kind of go into judgment and shame about it. And yet what you're saying is so important to be able to honor that mm-hmm. and to be able to see it as whatever I experienced in my early childhood, even that mm-hmm. it was protecting my physiology at that time. Yeah. Now let's let's go through this. And this is really a model. And the model is that under life threat, your body actually can't fight or flee. It doesn't work. It's not doesn't have enough metabolic resources, especially as a child. So the body goes into a more ancient, and this is evolutionary ancient circuit, a very foundational circuit in our brains and, and functionally shuts us down. We immobilize, but we immobilize without muscle tone. So we hit the floor, we pass out, we may defecate. And it's also, we not, we're not in a physiological state that is producing sufficient oxygenated blood to our cortex. So it's not good for us. We can fall, we get hurt, or we can get hypoxemia. We're not getting enough oxygen. The nervous system isn't stupid. It's saying this, I'm only going to use this under the severe challenges of life threat. And it basically is like a death feigning response. So the issue is you're a small child, you're overwhelmed with activity or threat. Your body says, uh, immobilize, appear to be dead, reduce metabolic demands, slow your breathing. The defecation comes because it's metabolically costly to to process food. So all these things have, in a sense, an adaptive function. But it's not a great reaction to totally collapse and fall down. So the nervous system tries to uh, deal with it. It has to say immobilization is good because then you won't be seen, you won't be heard, and you won't be attacked. So it goes into a freeze response. The freeze response recruits a sufficient amount of sympathetic tone to keep muscles rigid enough or strong enough to keep you in an upright position or in a position where blood flow to your brain 
is uh, normal or close to being normal. Uh, but it's not the best response either. It's very uncomfortable. It's, uh, it's also physiologically demanding because it, the freeze is actually interfering with homeostatic functions. So over prolonged traumas or in, intrusions into your nervous system, freeze may be changed. And this is where dissociation may start coming in. So dissociation is this very sophisticated neural uh, interpretation of life threat. Remember, in shutting down and in freezing, it's getting you out of there, um, getting you away from the conflict. But so is dissociation. Dissociation, you're going someplace else, but your body can now basically regulate. So dissociation is this trade-off about the psychological space or the concept of the individual self not being in the physical environment versus the physical attributes of the person. So there's breaking apart or the parts come out and there are a lot of work and trauma about parts. So I see this as a nuanced and almost a remarkable adaptation of what dissociation is. It's a hypothetical model of that, but we do know that with lots of people, uh, they will freeze. They'll be, you know, the body will just go rigid. And the consequences of that are uh, very, uh, they're not good. We talk about what the person is feeling in themselves. They can't do things. We haven't mentioned what those cues do to the person across from them especially as, as they get older, when they have these scripts for the body where there, there's a threat cue, which has nothing to do with, let's say, with the spouse or a friend, and their bodies go like this, and they're basically not there. So it's not a total dissociation. But what they've done is they've broken the capacity or disrupted the capacity for social engagement. So now they're broadcasting threat cues to the person who's across from them, who now can get really kind of disturbed where did you go? You know, where's, where's my mate? Where's my co-regulator? That person just left the room. And some people get into really severe arguments and fights at that point. So we can see the uh, cascade of these reactions. And if we start understanding what they are, we can start having greater control of them. So what happens, I guess this is a lot of in, in like internal family systems where, and actually somatic experiences, well, you repurpose the experience, you change the narrative around it, and you become more accepting and more honoring of what your body's doing. The latter part, I would say, is a polyvagal perspective. You become more aware and more honoring of what the body has tried to do. So you don't get the anger at your body. And you become more welcoming to your own self, and that helps the body uh, come back to in interactive contact. And what you're describing is so important, and even the sequence of what you're describing, because you're talking about we have to start with being a witness to the body. Yeah. And, and that has to happen first before we can even look at these different parts of us and explore the internal family systems and those narratives, because until we can actually feel what's happening in our body and be able to create for ourselves a sense of safety, then some of those narratives are too scary to even look at and go into. 
Yeah, and what you you mentioned something that's extremely important, and that's being aware of our own body. Now, from a medical perspective, what we're doing when we lose that awareness and we become more numb, is we're turning off our neurobiological feedback loops. And so what does that do to the organs in our body as we turn off the feedback loops? We start getting comorbidities. We get irritable bowel syndrome, which is also subdiaphragmatic. We get other forms of gut problems, gastric distress. We get vasovagal syncope, episodes of passing out, another linkage to that dorsal vagus. And we start seeing these systems coming together uh, that become uh, physical illnesses, uh, dysautonomia is a big uh, fibromyalgia. Uh, these are all features of a dysregulated autonomic nervous system. But it's not like you have a dysregulated autonomic nervous system as the roll of the dice. The autonomic nervous system for many people gets retuned because it's very trauma sensitive. It's threat sensitive, averse sensitive. And if the nervous system thinks that your autonomic nervous system, meaning you, are under a state of chronic threat, it's going to be tuned to be defensive. When it's tuned to be defensive, it's, it's reallocating resources from homeostatic function, health, growth, and restoration now to protecting you. But protecting you is not a social state. It's not a thoughtful state. It's a state of uh, conservation of resources. And there's one other point about this shutting down our dorsal vagus. We have learned, or most of us, when we went to school, where really it was emphasized fight flight as being the primary defense system. And then we start talking about things like cortisol and adrenal uh, deficiencies, you know, all these things about how, how we think, how we would think a fight flight system could get turned off. And we kind of miss the point. The point is that fight flight systems are metabolically costly. You can't maintain them. They didn't evolve to be chronic. If they become chronic, the system has its own feedback and shuts down. So if we, in a sense, in this mobilized fight, flight, heavily stressed, whatever terminology you want to use, the body can't take it. The body will then do this adaptive shutting down. And you see this in many, I would say, now called functional diseases, uh, fibromyalgia, but chronic fatigue, and what we're even seeing in the, the outcome of COVID. And we have to also ap appreciate that COVID retunes the autonomic nervous system. And a trauma-retuned autonomic nervous system is, based on our own research, more susceptible to mental health issues during the pandemic and that's not necessarily getting COVID, but it's also linked to, in another study we did, linked to getting COVID. So the, it's a kind of an interesting issue that our adversity history that we carry with us is not only affecting our mental health, our vulnerability under challenges like COVID, but affects our physical health, the ability to get infection. And again, we are kind of taught that the uh, pathogens are floating out there and we all have literally an equal chance of getting them and getting ill. And we forget that a nervous system under threat is already vulnerable to more vulnerable to pathogens. One of the things that I teach in my biology of trauma certification course for providers is this idea that you're talking about that I, I want to highlight so much for people 
is around this idea of energy conservation mm-hmm. and conservation of physiology. And we cannot maintain a high metabolic yeah. state for an extended period of time for short periods of time. Yes. And the body will do that. But then when, when we have a biology that will actually decrease the amount of energy that we have available to begin with, I teach that we have biology that can actually predispose us to the shutdown and to the freeze, because even if you want to look at neurotoxins, if you Mm. want to look at mitochondrial toxins, anything that's going to compromise the nervous systems, the body's ability to maintain a high metabolic state is going to lead it sooner to that line of needing to shut down, needing to go into the freeze in order to, to maintain life. Absolutely. And what, what I am learning, I say we are learning, but I'm learning. And from colleagues like uh, Bob Navio, I don't know if you know his work, but it's, he has a danger cell response and yes. that is with uh, mitochondria and our initial interaction, which was over 10 years ago, was he contacted me and he said, uh, mitochondria follow the, the, the rules of the polyvagal theory. And so what the polyvagal theory is, this notion of social sociality as being a uh, neuromodulator of health, uh, fight flight as being defensive, and then shutting down is literally implosive or dying off in terms of the bacteria or mitochondria, that these are literally the rules of living systems. And we have, and what we've done, and this is part of what our society has kind of taught us, it's really said we're above that, all of that. We're so smart. We're so cortical. We don't have to listen to what the brainstem is trying to teach us. And we just will, we'll just, we'll, we'll show the brainstem that as it monitors our bodily organs, we don't have to follow that. We can work more hours. We can numb our bodies. We can make more money, publish more papers, get bigger grants. It's all the same. We can keep mobilized, but our bodies want something else. They want to feel safe. And our evolutionary history created these bio-neural or bio-behavioral portals, sociality of feeling safe in the arms of another or with another safe person. And that is like the mother and the infant. The infant thrives in the arms of the mother. Well, the adult thrives in the arms of another safe person as well, or your puppy thrives in the arms of a person because our bodies need to feel a context of safety. Our bodies want to feel safe and we can live a long time. Most of our life, all of our life for some of us, feeling like we have to brace, guard, be closed off because it hasn't felt safe to feel safe. It hasn't felt safe to relax. This is why I start everyone with a 21 day journey. It's the version of checking in with our body and being a witness to the body and the different parts of us. So I start everyone with a 21 day journey to be a witness to the body and create a felt sensation of safety. And that's the first week. In fact, as I record this, I'm just finishing up the first week of leading a group through their 21 day journey and the changes and the transformations that they're happening of just even realizing how guarded, how braced, and how exhausted their body is underneath the surface. The second week, we are a witness to our body while we bring in a felt sense of support. The third week, we witness our body as we invite and learn tools for safely expanding our window, our window of being present, our window of growing, our window of opening up, and we want to do that safely. We need to do that safely. And how do we safely open up and even introduce the different parts of us 
through this polyvagal lens of needing to start by being a witness to the body. So what we, when we honor what the body needs, it is amazing what will start to shift in our life, in our relationships, and our health, our physical health changes. The data coming back from the 21-day journey are statistically significant with these numbers. People experience a 26% decrease in daily physical pain, 28% decrease in GI symptoms, 28% decrease in sleep issues, 30% decrease in depression symptoms, 30% decrease in anxiety symptoms. The, when we honor what the body needs and start to give it this felt sense of safety, have the tools to do that for ourselves, this is what will change dramatically our life, our relationships, down to our physical health on a cellular level. It, it gets me so excited to see what is possible even in the 90-year-olds who take the 21-day journey, and they still experience amazing changes, even though their body has been living guarded and closed off and bracing for decades. It is all so incredibly wonderful to see what the body can do. Thank you for joining me for this episode of the Biology of Trauma podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Amy. Please rate this podcast. It actually helps other people find us when you rate it. And leave a review so that I know what you like, what you would like more of, and I can bring you that. And I will see you on the next episode. Thank you for joining me today. If you enjoyed today's show, be sure to subscribe. We definitely will learn, laugh, and sometimes cry together on this healing journey. And you won't want to miss an episode. Give my podcast five stars, share it with a friend or colleague. If you felt an impact as it truly helps get the word out and breaking the paradigm of how we do trauma work. I look forward to seeing you back here next week. Until then, this is your host, Dr. Amy, sending you lots of love.